Well, I was originally going to do something on a very unusual passage on Exodus 32 to 33 about the presence of God. But one of the surprising things many Christians fail to realize uh, is that the presence of God can pervade any environment we're in, not just in church on Sundays. And um, I changed my mind because I felt a tremendous burden to teach on this subject of work and career for you. And it overrode everything else. And that's why I felt, and we would do this tonight, and I hope it will be amazingly encouraging to you. As well as informing, it will change your whole attitude. And not that your attitude is necessarily negative, but more importantly, you could change other people's attitudes from what you hear tonight. And um, the subject then is work and career. Or if you want it in more technical language, a holistic pre-perusia biblical theology of theocentric ergonomics. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you like simplicity, we call this tonight, thank God it's Monday. (laughs) So I want to read from Colossians chapter 3. And the section where Paul, as he does in the letters of the Ephesians, addresses servants or slaves. And this is what he writes in Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now if you think back, I think it would be true of most of the people in this room that we've actually been working since we were about five years of age and first started school. Starting at primary school, we were under authority to do tasks that we struggled to learn, involved great mental and sometimes physical effort to do, some of which we enjoyed and some of which we probably hated. And this points to two facts. One, that not all work is paid work. (laughs) And secondly, you may not realize this, students work. (laughs) Now since then, I've done all kinds of jobs. I've been a paper boy. I earned money for many months washing cars with a friend from school. I then, at the age of 15 or 16, became a shelf stacker at Tesco's in Bootle, where I grew up. I've been a fruit packer in a warehouse. I've done many jobs as a machine operator, and I couldn't keep up with the women around me who really were skillful at stamping out telephone earpieces in aluminium, and I couldn't keep up with their quotas at all, and therefore didn't earn bonuses. I've done road drilling through a whole summer where I got a wonderful town, the best town I've had in my life, on the East Langs Road. I've truck driven. I've painted and learned decorating skills. I've done office clerk, 
and then progress chaser because I had to keep going down on the shop floor to find what the heck had happened to that bin of hinges that should have reached the customer three months ago. And I managed to clear most of the backlog in the remaining weeks I had before I went to university. I've been a school janitor and cleaned toilets out in a primary school. I've been a bread slicer and wrapper in a bakery in Wigan. I've then been a school teacher after I graduated and did my postgraduate certificate. And then I trained for the ministry and I've been a pastor for 31 years. All of that time I've been used, abused, bored, stretched, applauded, underpaid, probably overpaid, and at times not paid at all. But I thank God for the gift of work. And you know, I believe there's an urgent necessity for all of us to reappraise our understanding of vocation and work, and indeed career. I read the story of a factory in August 1983, an electronics factory near Bristol. And it was reported because it was finally exposed because its workers had been sleeping through the night shift in that factory for 16 years. They had fabricated secret walls and floors in the roof space to hide bedrooms in the plant. And how were they discovered? Well, an outside electrical contractor had traced what he called spare electrical cables that he didn't understand what they were there for. He traced them down to some secret hatches and found inside these hatches hidden radios, lamps, beds, alarm clocks, all designed to remind the workers to go home at the right time after sleeping through their paid working shift. Now, how they got away with that for so long, I don't know. But it speaks of sometimes a British mentality, especially among what we call the working classes, to their jobs. This attitude is still fairly commonplace, I would say, in British thinking. Maybe more commonplace than ever before. But you know, it's rapidly being supplanted by another thing, a thing called drivenness. A new kind of slave mentality in many workplaces, whether you're blue collar or white collar as a worker, that lives in fear and bondage. Fear of the threat of overwork and underpay, or the bricks without straw production requirements like Pharaoh put upon the Hebrews in Egypt. Merciless overlords along with the constant threat of downsizing because of lack of orders for the company's product, if the figures are not met in an increasingly competitive world market of companies. And with some, work has become a form of idolatry, a spiritual quest for economic man, if you like. It's said that work alone can provide some sense of significance and purpose for our lives and the contentment that should come with it. It's part of what it means to live a meaningful life, to have work. But you know, divorced from God, the whole idea of work and activity, often by the end of things, leaves the worshipper spent and empty. Would you agree with that? It's like a kind of burnt-out rocket stage. The phrase burnout came from the NASA space program, 
where they launched staged rockets to get the capsule or satellite into position. And you've probably seen, seen footage uh, from on board about how each stage of the rocket is abandoned and it spins away into space, hopefully to crash safely into the ocean uh, and not do any harm on the surface of the Earth. Burnout means you've run out of energy, run out of fuel. And that happens to us as human beings. We become depleted and exhausted and good for nothing. And much of this is due to the drivenness which has undoubtedly been an American influence on the rest of the world. And it's called an evil result, if you like, from what some have called the Protestant work ethic. The Protestant earth work ethic came out of the Reformation and then was honed by the mentality and thinking of the Puritan era of the 17th century. And it was the ethic that work had dignity and that it was a very important thing that could be done to the glory of God. So it should be done diligently and with honesty and with our best efforts and talents expended upon it. But you know the worst side of this is that that work becomes an idol. It becomes your whole raison d'etre for being. And a moment's reflection then would tell us that things are less than ideal in some of these outlooks I've looked at. In common with the rest of British society, I think even Christians tend to view work, in many cases, as a necessary evil. A necessary evil because we'd rather be somewhere else. And we'd rather be doing something else than our work. Something we really enjoyed. So thank God it's Friday, because now we can do things that we really enjoy. And you know, that's why many in our culture are desperately seeking to avoid work for as long as and as often as they can, or permanently ensure against it in an uncertain future. We have, therefore, on offer, very temptingly in Britain, many get-rich-quick schemes, like the National Lottery, which millions are invested in every single week. Why? Because there's the hope of striking such a jackpot win that you would never have to work again. <laughs> and that you could spend the millions that you have just won by incredible chances of luck on just doing whatever the heck you want for the rest of your life. No obligations to anyone. And you've also noticed that our advertising sets huge importance to leisure industries, the music industry, which has been undergoing uh, great difficulties due to pirated downloads in recent years. But movies, there's probably an all-time high interest in movies because of their free accessibility for home viewing these days, as well as cinema going. Clubbing and vacationing, driving and traveling, eating, dressing up, and playing sport. Advertising such huge emphasis on play, not work. And we want the leisure to spend our lives doing then what we want to do, not what we have to do. Yeah. And work is not usually seen in the category of what we want to do. So city men have an ambition, generally, and this is probably what's led to our present crisis, of being able to retire at 35, if possible. There's a push in other quarters to a four or even three day working week and that's not going to happen unless necessity forces it on people because there isn't enough work to do. 
trade unions have historically existed to help minimize work and maximize pay for their union members. And three factors, I think, have fueled this escapist mentality from work, which we're going to try and point out is quite unhealthy. The first is the immorality of the workplace. The immorality of the workplace is not just that in some places there might have been page three pinups on the wall, so that's got increasingly difficult to think with feminism, but the whole mentality of turning up for work for what you can get, not turning up for work for what you can give. And we want to know, therefore, in any job we have or are presently employed in, what's in this for me? And this is an unworthy motivation because it lacks some of the vital elements we need to make work as satisfying as it's meant to be. In fact, what this attitude does, what do I get out of this, deteriorates the workplace for everyone over time. Perks are taken, whether authorized or not. So the employer is losing out often phenomenal amounts of production, products, and money because they can't trace down how these parts are disappearing. <coughs> My stepfather worked for Ford's Motor Company in Liverpool in the 1960s and 70s. And that factory eventually closed down. The primary reason it closed down is because so many spare parts for car, for cars were being carried out of the factory on a, on, a, on a daily basis that the factory couldn't maintain its viability any longer. The same thing happened to the docks in Liverpool. Pilfering and stealing was part of the perks of working for Ford Motor Company, but everybody lost their job as a, real, a result of it. Then there's VAT fiddling and false tax returns. This is a commonplace abuse of employers, and so is shoplifting and stealing from your place of work. That's called perks of the job. Shortcuts are made in service. We've all been in the receiving end of that. Cheating and lying to customers has become the norm. It's very rare to find an artisan or, or a highly skilled individual or a service industry where you can actually believe what they say and they will perform on exactly what they said and the time that they said they'd do it. So orders aren't completed on time and invoices aren't paid on time either. So the customers too have learned how to play the game of getting out of obligations. The idea then is become to do as little as possible for as much money as possible. And all of this illustrates when I'm talking about the immorality of the workplace. It becomes a less desirable place to be. The second factor is the inhumanity of the workplace. In the Renaissance period, Leonardo da Vinci, the famous Renaissance artist and sculptor, came to Florence in Italy, but found himself a tool of higher powers, wealthy sponsors and others, who wanted to use his gifting for their own personal gain. Giorgio Vasari, a contemporary artist with Leonardo, and a historian, summed up the mentality he said this, Florence treats its artists as time treats its creatures. It creates them and then slowly destroys them. 
Well, there's probably not a person here who's worked, at least for a short period of time, for an employer who has worn you down emotionally and physically, and made you feel undervalued and probably exploited. Who would want to be working for any length of time in an atmosphere, unless you absolutely have to, that will actually destroy you in that way? But though there are an increasing number of laws to protect human rights, it still doesn't mean you're going to be treated like a human being. You're seen often as a cipher, a cog in the industrial machine, and few people actually know your name or call you by it. You're not valued very much, no matter how talented you are, and you're rarely thanked or praised, even if a job, an outstanding job, has been done. I know this is not universally true, but it's one of the factors people are less than happy about their work. This can make people feel insecure. The sales figures aren't good and redundancy threatens. A young woman, recently married in our church, um, came to speak to me after a prophetic word I gave about fear. And several people responded. And this one woman told me that the problem was her place of work. She has an insecure and very driven immediate woman boss who sits facing her across the two sides of the desk. And this woman has made it very clear to her, you will be answerable to me for everything. She's a very controlling and manipulative woman who's insecure in her own position and is in turn making this young woman insecure. And as a result of this, instead of enjoying going to work, she's scared to be at work fearful as to what potential this woman has to do her harm and maybe even get rid of her. She told her on the second day she was there, there won't be any lunch breaks by the way, you are not allowed to leave the premises uh, to buy a lunch, you must bring one with you and eat it at the desk here because in our company time is money. Who'd have thought that could have been allowed in uh, the 21st century but that's what she's been facing. I told her what I'm going to tell you later, and it's totally changed this young woman's attitude. But we'll get to that later. So you feel insecure, especially when the sales figures aren't good and redundancy threatens. Mergers and takeovers can happen without any other consideration than that of profit for the shareholders and the bottom line. So relationships at work can be superficial and phony. Judging by the gossip and sometimes vitriolic backbiting that takes place at this drinks machine or the photocopier. And all of this means for an atmosphere of the inhumanity of the workplace. And the third factor in this is the idolatry of the workplace. Work has become something of a god, a deity, a minor deity but very important one, a cruel god that demands everything of us but gives little sucking all the juices out of us over perhaps many years, the space of half a lifetime, and then discarding people like some burned-out husk of what's left of you. So we face the problem now of elderly people and not-so-elderly people whose last years on earth may turn out to be ones of total redundancy, idle uselessness, an early heart attack, premature sen senility or death. Not thinking of anybody here. What's happened is that this God can take away from you your family. He can take away from you your church and your ministry. 
provided the offer of promotion and inducements are offered at the right time. On Roman tombstones that have been unearthed in parts of the Roman Empire, they often contained an epigraph that was so familiar on Roman, Roman tombstones that the Latin words were simply reduced to letters NFNSNC, NFNSNC. And the Latin words that they were short for, everybody knew, and in English they meant this I was not, I am not, I care not. And that's something of the view of death that prevailed in the ancient pagan world, that life was just a vapor, and when you're gone, you're gone, and you don't care because you don't know. So this means that it's true of many that they've lived for their work, and they may well die in their work, or at least for their work, and that's the idolatry of the workplace. It's as though that the workplace is seen as something of a prison cell. More on that later. Now, you know what's missing in all of this? And we could say a lot more about this, I guess. It is what I'd like to call the eternal dimension to our work and the God callings that God has on our own lives. And I want to help to restore this thinking that moved our forefathers Around the time of the Reformation, this teaching came to the fore, certainly in the Puritan period, and it has been there in the hearts of God's people who understand that there is an eternal dimension to everything we do in this life. So the first thing I want to look at is making a career of our calling. Now, one major factor in restoring the eternal dimension to our work now faces us, and I'll put it in a nutshell, because I believe it's a very important factor. It's this factor of what it means to hear from God as to your life calling or vocation. You'd probably agree that Ant has got a life calling, and I've got a life calling because we are pastors and preachers. It's not common to hear that there's the very real possibility of any Christian hearing a life calling that does not involve full-time work for the Church of Jesus. Calling is the means or process by which you get someone's attention. So, for example, when you call on the phone, or you are called on the phone, and whatever your call sign or, or call notes are, they grab your attention. You can hardly resist um, switching on to hear who's at the other end, who's after you at this moment in time. Even if we want to resist because we're busy doing something else, our concentration lapses. We want to know if we miss something important. Human beings call to each other and to God. We even call to animals. And if they're dogs, they come to you. If they're cats, they just completely ignore you. <laughs> But animals can call too. You've noticed that. Every animal has unique um, vocal skills that it can use to communicate to other animals and signal messages in many cases. Not in words, but by way of warning, maybe even sources of food or something of that kind. But have you considered the possibility that God himself may be the one doing the calling in your life, getting your attention in some way? Take any of the world changes we find in the Bible and in history. 
people who've served God in special ways, not necessarily in leading churches. Each was resolved to find out what it was that God meant for them to do. They wanted a mission in life. Ever since I was a boy, I've always felt I've wanted a mission in life. I've wanted to know my life would count. It may be because I've known a lot of rejection in my childhood from my natural father and even from my stepfather. So Adam and Eve were given this blessing in the first place in Eden. Right at the very beginning, they soon rejected, however, the creatureliness that they had towards the creature, creator. The creator had the right to set the boundaries and limits of their freedoms and also outline what they were ultimately on this planet to do. It was under that wonderful term, dominion. And it entailed a lot of things I'll talk about later. But they rejected that creatureliness and the moral responsibility they had to God, refusing to be directed by him any longer because Satan had sold them the lie. This would bring limitations to their life and lack of fulfillment. It would put them in a box and they needed the freedom to get out of that box now while they had the chance. And the result was the exact opposite of what they'd hoped for. It led to loss of meaning and fulfillment and direction to their lives. Everything went wrong for them from that point onwards. Even in the Church of Jesus Christ, we have often lost the sense of importance of what it is to be called. It is important for all our lives to hear from God in some way. And I hope I'm not setting a bar too high, but I actually believe this is true. Vocation is the word from the Latin for calling. This was once seen as something reserved for very special individuals in the church, special servants of God. And the list would have included clergy, priests, monks, nuns. The medieval church drew a great distinction between those who served Mother Church and God directly and the rest. And even today, we often think and say in Protestant evangelical churches, that full-time missionaries and pastors are called, but not many others. So we have a two-tier uh, sort of classification of believers who are in the orbit of the church's life and membership. So, for example, we would rank apostles and prophets as the highest calling of all, the most dynamic in the Holy Spirit. And then would come overseers, elders, bishops, and then pastors, and then missionaries. There would be then, somewhere down the line, in other orders, monks and nuns, holed up in lonely and places of imprisonment. And then we cross the line of despair after all that list. And that's the secular world outside where you poor sods have to, <laughs> have to earn a living. And that would be anything from being a university professor and uh, or lecturer, at least you've got dignity with that. And then it might move to professionals like doctors and information technology people, programmers of computers, engineers. Yes, but then we move on to the factory workers. And way down there somewhere are people who do ugly, yucky jobs, like housewives and mothers and street sweepers and people who work down sewers 
and those who refine our water for us. So you see, we have a hierarchy of importance on the basis of an imagined superiority and spirituality at the top to a completely unworthy vocation at the bottom that's not worth of anyone's talents to invest in. What happens here then is that the Reformation went a long way to try and re redress this. Its leaders like Martin Luther and John Calvin reacted very strongly to medieval Roman Catholicism and its view of the clergy, laity, distinction and hierarchy where the clergy were at the top and the laity were not important. What they then begun to teach from the New Testament was what they called the priesthood of all believers. That every believer was a priest. A priest is a person who mediates between God and man and therefore can represent man's needs to God and then mediate something of God's answers to those needs to man. We can become servants of God in the way professional clergy do too. The hierarchy and distinction begins to blur. And they recovered this emphasis on equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. But this tends to become forgotten quickly. Without a sense, however, of dignity and calling, everything goes wrong for us in life. Unbelievers tend to think generally in terms of fate, impersonal forces you can't do much about. Luck, which is mere chance in life. Maybe karma, that you're paying off in the sequence of bad luck and terrible disasters that have happened for something you've done in a previous lifetime or earlier on in this lifetime. And self-actualization is another thing that we are here to invent our own purpose for life. I've got to be me. I've got to do this. I know I can succeed in this. And one of the biggest public expressions of this is X Factor. And the tens and hundreds of thousands who queue to fulfill my dream. And some of them haven't got a chance. <laughs> you can see their gutted disappointment that their whole life went down the tubes every time one of those crosses was buzzed by the panel who are deciding their future destiny. And it ain't going to happen. It's something that entertains us, but at the same time it makes you want to weep. It's true then that some believers are unable to see themselves as specially guided by God in this life. As to how they could invest the only life they have before they die. <laughs> now one major result of this is that work becomes a very negative part of people's lives. Who's got the time to spend at least 40, probably 50 days, hours of a week, every week, for 48 weeks a year, when there's so many things that's un untapped in my life, so many things I want to do, so many things that would make my life happier than going to work or having a day job. So work becomes dulled and becomes meaningless even though it's considered a necessary evil for some people. The majority of people maybe. This can result then in laziness in some in the workplace and drivenness and overwork in others in the workplace. They can't see the point of it and therefore they either try to escape work, um, having a sickie, or they seek to drop out and become, rather than become buried alive. 
Herman Melvin, who wrote the famous novel Moby Dick, said, they talk of the dignity of work. Bosh! The dignity is in the leisure. <laughs> and that's why the slogan came into being, thank God it's Friday. Because this is my time now. This is a weekend of leisure where I can do what I want to do and that I enjoy doing. The 1960s student movements called for a work-free world in which total automatons would produce all the food, all the goods, all the services, everything we needed. And men, therefore, students particularly, would be free for drugs and fornication. <laughs> Magazines and movies and holiday adverts still promote this dream every early spring and on through the summer, that this is life. These blue seas and sun, glistening waters and radiant tans and parties on the beach. But you know, a life of leisure is essentially parasitic and non-productive. In former days, people realized this and it led to revolutions like the French Revolution, that the leisure class is parasitic. And when a culture aims for leisure, a whole culture, in every class, it becomes parasitic itself. Dependent on the state to subsidize that lifestyle by the millions. Now what this needs is a recovery of a wholesome view of callings from God. And to see this, we need to understand that God is the source of the calling that we need in every personal life. Now, we can't map this out for ourselves. We can't even listen to our parents or other authority figures in our life for this. What we need, all of us, is a mission in life. Now, I'm not going to try and make you feel bad about this if you're not clear on this, but I want you to know that the Bible teaches a great deal about callings. And I'll list five ways in which it uses this now. It's in your notes. The first call in our dealings with God is to faith. To faith in his son Jesus and to, in himself, which I believe the Bible teaches is an effectual call. When God decides to call you to faith in his son, he works on us powerfully and progressively until we come to a persuaded faith. It means then that we're to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received according to Ephesians 4 verse 1. The verb kaleo sounds like our English word call. And the noun that comes from it, klesis, klesis, denotes the way God begins to intervene in our lives before we ever knew him. And to turn us from being rebels who are shaking our fist heavenwards if we bother with God at all, so that we'll become disciples of Jesus Christ. So in Romans 1, Paul defines the converting power of God in this call quite significantly. He says this, <clears throat> through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. How can you bring about obedience of faith in people unless God is the agent who is ultimately at work in the heart of a former rebel? So, for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, he says. There is this call to belong to Jesus Christ. It was effectual. No one on their knees credits themselves for making a decision to follow Jesus. We thank God he saved us. 
We know that his operations were primary. They preceded any response from us. In fact, they evoked that response from us. This is what we mean by the effectual call of God. And this is a call to someone before it's a call to something. Once we're connected with him, all kinds of possibilities open up for us. And this is not the experience we would have chosen or initiated. Rather, we were chosen. For some, this is a crisis. A crisis experience and fairly instant. A sudden turnaround, as sharp as, as night and day. But for others, it's, it's more gradual. Maybe the Lord would work slowly and progressively in some of your lives, over time. But the turnaround eventually came, and the gospel began to make sense to us. People with no identity and no real name, other than perhaps the designer labels they wear on their jeans and fashion accessories, are marked out now with a new name. They are Christ's ones. They are Christians. They belong to the figure of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. They were once felt lost and homeless in the universe. Now suddenly they've, they've got a home and they've got a family. The Church of Jesus. And most of all, they now know God as Father. Now this is saving faith and the life of faith. Saving faith is distinguished from achieving faith in the New Testament. There's a great chapter on faith in Hebrews 11. Uh, it has very little to do with saving faith. It has to do with what's going to happen in and through your life after the moment you've believed God. You're going to produce and effect massive changes around you. You're going to lead people out of Egypt, millions of slaves out of Egypt. You're going to build an ark in the middle of a desert plain where there is no sea and hardly any rain because the world's going to be flooded as Noah did. You may even give up your life, which would be the most foolish thing of all, but it could be your destiny to bear witness even in suffering and loss, pain and martyrdom. Whatever it is God has in mind for us in terms of achieving faith, He is the one who's ordained this for us. So this leads to the second heading, to a station in life. The providential call of God. When you become Christians, it's not in a vacuum. We're already somewhere and living at some time in history. The call of God came on my life when I was 14 years of age, living in Liverpool, in a non-Christian home. We're already somewhere. And now we begin to see that circumstance in entirely different light. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is urging people not to be in too big a hurry to get out of that situation and time. Because this is the circumstance in which God has called you. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. The other versions say, has called him to, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Verse 24, he says this, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now he doesn't say permanently. He means don't be in a big hurry to leave this, unless God indicates otherwise. The circumstances of our birth were ordained by God. I was born in Liverpool into an already unhappy marriage and home. 
The circumstances then of our family, of our education, of our era, of the city we were born in, or town. And we begin to see all of this carries new weight and significance. Once we had saving faith put in our hearts, we realize that we've had a unique situation of life that God's ordained for us. And this use of the same word, klesis, here translated by Luther as a station in life, that is the position you were in when God called you to faith in Christ, now can be transformed. This is no accident. The context speaks of possibilities like being a slave in 1 Corinthians 7, or a free person, or married, or single. Many people in all of these four circumstances are unhappy with those circumstances. Particularly perhaps single people. But then have you met some marrieds (laughs) who are totally unhappy about it? But now you're in a station God has ordained for you and saved in that situation. Everything could change now. The context then speaks of being circumcised or uncircumcised, a Jew or a Gentile. It helps us to see that God's providence has been at work in our lives long before we ever realized it. Even when we knew Him not. And even rulers are subject to this providence of God. Because Romans 13.1 says, There's no authority but that which God has ordained. And it happened to be Nero at that time. So calling means something like appointment or station in life or situation. Your starting point with God. And since this is of God, your life has now become more fluid and liquid as to the potential that God can unlock in you. More open and pregnant with new possibilities. My classmates in my third year at high school, Brutal Grammar School for Boys, so don't get excited, didn't go to Harrow or Rugby or anywhere else, Brutal Grammar School for Boys, um, was my, my highest, the highest ambition of my contemporary 14-year-olds was to get as many cigarettes as they could, to have as much sex or at least a handling of naked girls as they could, acquire as much ma- uh, uh, um, pornogra- pornography as they could sneak into their bedrooms, and no plans for their future life whatsoever. Smash as many street lamps as you possibly could with an air gun, and I've done that myself many times in Liverpool prior to my conversion, not after it, I hasten to I. <laughs> and this, I think you can see, does not add up to a hill of beans in terms of a significant life. How wonderful that God called me in that darkness. And that was at a Friday night at a Billy Graham relay to the Central Hall, a Methodist Hall in Liverpool, from a crusade going on in in London. And I heard Cliff Richard give his testimony. Didn't even know he was a Christian. My mum was a big fan of Cliff Richard in 1967. And then Billy preached and broke my heart. And I was the last person to get up out of my seat. And I had one big fear that Jesus wouldn't have me. But he did. And the whole world changed that night. That was 43 years ago. And it's never been the same since. God called me in that station as he called you. And there's no accident to all of this. God has a plan for us. It was no accident that Lydia sold purple cloth. Or that Priscilla and Aquila had been tent makers like Paul was. Or that Saul of Tarsus had had many years as a highly educated, zealous Pharisee when Christ revealed himself to him. 
none of us are locked into those backgrounds, and God will redeem much of what happened to us in that background. This is your starting point for the renewal of the whole of your life. The situation can be transformed because it's taken you up with a call to now follow Christ. But don't be in a hurry to change that situation immediately. I didn't get out of brutal grammar school and head to, to Harrow. <laughs> Not at all. God had work for me to do in that school. Before I'd left, two years later, I'd led many people to Christ. I'd already begin the feeling to start preaching, and did so in the CU when I was in the fifth year. Don't be in a hurry then to change, because you may miss something by being discontent. Everything can be sanctified in some way. So there's no such thing as a dead-end job, for example. Or being trapped in a stale marriage. No, that's your station. Now what's God going to do to change it for you? Not change you out of it, change you in it, and change it through a changed you. Mm -hmm. Then third, the call of a new, conviction, new convictions, the heart call. The Holy Spirit not only begins to create new abilities in us when we get saved, but he also creates the desire to use them for particular areas of service. I thank God that the 9 to 12 people who got saved in that rapid period of two months in Liverpool and joined this little tiny Baptist church with less than 60 members were pastored by two 20-somethings who were engaged to be married, Bob and Elva, and got us into the Bible every Sunday afternoon in a Bible study, and had us give a 10-minute talk on the next section of 1 John, and then get us hungry for God, and then took us off to Keswick Convention. It was at that Keswick Convention, two years later, that I was called to the ministry at the age of 16, listening to John Stock give four-hour sermons, four one-hour sermons on 2 Timothy. Who'd think a 16-year-old scouser would sit for four hours listening to a, a very posh, well-spoken, public school-educated preacher, Anglican to boot, because I was a Baptist by now, <laughs> go through all that epistle and be nailed to my bench and nailed by God to be called a preacher, to guard the gospel myself with the rest of my life. It's amazing what God can do when you don't, you're not in a hurry to uh, sort your own life out. Let someone who knows better what to do with it have that job. So we find we have new ambitions to do what is needed in the church and in the world. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, it is a beautiful letter, which I've taught through many times among some of the New Frontiers trainees uh, for pastoral ministry. But Paul says to, one, to, to him, This is a trustworthy saying that if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. This is written to a pastor for a pastor. And many temptations come into our hearts to denigrate the calling that's on us because it is hard work and it takes its toll on us. But it is a noble task. Do you know I believe God would say that to any vocation he puts on us? This is a noble task. And therefore remain in it. So, I'll, go, I'll, I'll try and spell some of that out before we finish. Elizabeth O'Connor 
once said this, We ask to know the will of God without guessing that His will is written in every fiber of our beings. And Frederick Beekner, the American Presbyterian writer, offers this advice. Listen to your life. See it for the fathomless mystery it is. In the boredom and in the pain, no less than the excitement and the sadness, touch, taste, smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of your life. Do you find you have a love for words or for music? For children or clunking cars that need to have the clunk declunked? Do you feel a compassion for pregnant mums or diseased bodies that they may be repaired? These are the ways God writes in our innermost being some of the things he has in mind for us to do. Which leads me then to the fourth head, the call to service in the world, which is the dominion call. It came to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, at their creation, when God said to them, as the plural trinity he is, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on it. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, and the, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. And on it goes. The unique creature man has a supreme calling to service in God's world. The dominion call. And the fact that God himself is a worker and we'll look at that next time, endows all of our work with dignity. Do you know your work matters to God if it's not sinful or immoral or hurtful and destructive? See, God both created out of nothing and also continues to uphold that creation in being by maintaining its existence from moment to moment. All things are held together right now by Christ. And if Christ took his hand off the molecular structure of this whole cosmos, it would instantly disintegrate it. We can't give credit where it's not due. Nature has no inherent power to sustain itself. It's sustained supremely and supernaturally by the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. From its microcosm to the tiniest quark or atom to its macrocosm to the galaxies of space above us. He is both its manufacturing worker and its maintenance worker. He's also a designer and an engineer with all of the artistic, mathematical, Mechanical and motor skills necessary to create a cosmos and a tree and a beetle and a butterfly. Furthermore, he made Adam and commissioned him to do work. Adam's work was both manual, he was a gardener, and mental. He was a zoologist, naming and classifying animals. So I love the definition John Stott has given for work. He says, work is the expenditure of energy Mental, manual, or a mixture of both, 
which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Now note carefully, therefore, that not all work is employed work. We don't pay kids to go to school, but they do work there, some of them. And it means then that everything we do, whether it's just our gardening on Sunday or or Saturday, or even paid work, like um, stacking shelves as I did for a year or two in Tesco, being a mother of two children, you don't get paid for that, but there's few jobs more fulfilling if God has given you a heart to do it. It's all glorifying to God. And this is the origin of our term amateur. Whether it's an amateur golfer, an amateur artist, an amateur carpenter, an amateur, amateur bricklayer, it comes from the Latin amo. It means love. It means you do things for the love of doing it. Amateur. It's your hobby. You would do it if you didn't get paid for it. How wonderful if we could go to work every day with that mentality. Do you know, if I ceased being a paid employment as a pastor, I couldn't give up preaching and teaching the Bible to people if I didn't get paid for it. But don't tell the people at Westminster Chapel that, will you? <laughs> so, the final thing for tonight is that the call to the ministry in the church is also a component. Call to service in the world and call to ministry in God's church. We could call this the charismatic call. Christ has called us to do good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us that part of God's calling us from death to life and that by grace we have been saved not because of works, lest any man should boast, but through faith, means that there has come a call in that. And what is it? It has an ultimacy to it. It has a purpose to it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those works were non-existent in our lives at the moment we were called, And they had not preceded that point, no matter how long we'd lived prior to that. We had not yet discovered our divine destiny, let alone choosing to uh, engage with it and expend energy for it to the glory of God. But there is a divine destiny. There are works that have been planned for all of us. There's something that only you can do. There may be many things that only you can do, because God's tasks come in, in multifaceted and plural ways to us. We hold down a lot of skills and, and uphold a lot of causes and tasks for the Lord, depending on our capacity under God. Christ has called us to good works just as clearly as he called Joseph to become prime minister of Egypt, and David to become... Daniel, rather, to become cupbearer to the emperor, and Saul to train as a rabbi under Gamaliel. God has been in our past. Now it's time for us to focus on the future he has for us. God gives graces and gifts to us to operate, and you've seen them listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 
as well as elsewhere. And then he moves us to be stirred with those abilities so that they come into operation and confirms that to us if we're hesitant about it prophetically through others to say, you're on course, this is my will for you chosen servants of God can come with breathtakingly accurate prophecies to confirm what we've heard from God and you've probably been the recipient of them as I know I have been and how wonderful when we're timid and hesitant and can't believe our luck that God would ask us to do that and God says, yes, it's not luck, it's me I really want you to do this. So this is not so much to do with the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve. It's what we could call the recreation mandate. The remaking of men and women were on a mission as God's people. And every supernatural operation of God among us in terms of our words, in terms of our actions, in terms of supernatural anointings to heal and deliver, these are a call from God. And God spreads these as he wishes, to whom he wishes, so that there is a body functioning in all its parts, and every part of that body called to its unique contribution to the whole. And so when we ask the question, what is my calling? Greg Ogden outlines three dimensions of the individual experience of that call. One, we feel a compulsion, an inner oughtness about it. Two, it'll be bigger than ourselves. And three, it will at least ultimately bring you enormous satisfaction and joy to do it. This is what I mean then by a mission in life and by work becoming a vocation. So tomorrow morning we're going to spend two sessions on the details of this. And I hope if this is needed, and even if it's not, it takes, it will help you see the whole world differently from 8.30 Monday morning. <laughs> so the best is yet to come. <laughs>